for you to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. As we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, just we also want to remember um, Ray and Jeannie Groover. Um, the hospice nurse told Jeannie that Ray is now basically taking a turn and is not going to last long, much longer. I don't know what that means, um, except that uh, I know one of their daughters was planning on coming October 1st, and the hospice nurse said she's going to want to get here before that. Um, so just be in prayer for them. Ray is definitely ready uh, to go. Uh, we've talked before, and he's kind of wondering why he's still lingering uh, around. But, um, and that's always comforting to, to know that not only one that knows the Lord, but they have the absolute assurance that they're going to be with him. It's just, a, it's just so great to, to talk to individuals who have those things just completely settled in their mind uh, in that way. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you this morning. There are many things in life, Lord, that remind us of the shortness of life, that remind us, Lord, of the curse of sin and those things that we must deal with until you return. These are sobering things, Lord, that we don't really like to think about very often, but we know that we must. And Father, even though we are grateful for who you are and, again, all that you've done for us and Though we often talk about our salvation and what that means, Father, it is at these moments, the moments that Ray is facing and his family is facing with him, and we face with him as he is our dear brother and dear friend, that we are reminded really in a, in a new and fresh way of the great and utter importance of salvation. And that for us, death is not the end that it is really, indeed, it is the doorway to being ushered into your immediate presence. And in a sense, for us, we would say that our eternity, though it has already begun, we would say then that it begins in earnest. We are grateful, Lord, that you are true to your promises. We are grateful, Lord, that death is not the end. We can never thank you enough for that. We thank you, Lord, that Ray is definitely ready. We pray, Lord, in the coming days, perhaps weeks, that, Father, he would find great faith and comfort in, great comfort in his faith in your presence. We pray for Jeannie and for the family as they definitely will grieve the loss of one they love so dearly. We pray, Lord, for your presence in their lives as they go through this time of great difficulty. And help us, Father, in whatever way we can to be a help to them. And Father, as we think about these things, we turn our attention to the book of Matthew and, again, the coming of Christ and the beginning of the great story that we love so dearly. And Father, we ask again that you would speak to us through your word, enabling us, Father, to understand what is here, that we would not only see the obvious significance, but Father, also, Lord, that we would desire for the scripture to penetrate deep into our hearts and minds. Father, again, that there would continually be a change in us 
and that we become more like your son Christ in so many ways. We thank you, Father, again for being present with us. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When Matthew writes this, it appears to most that he is assuming that his readers know who John is. John was a well-known guy during the early days of Jesus. Even though we call him John the Baptist, it is best to think of him in terms of John the Baptizer. Uh, so he wasn't Baptist like you have Baptists and Presbyterians. Um, I mean, we'll claim him, but um, the idea is, is that that's, you know, that's not what was going on there. It was because he was baptizing individuals and calling them to repentance. In fact, uh, he was really rather well known, and again, he was called Baptist because of what he was doing. He was uh, instructed those who were repentant sinners to receive the ritual immersion that was depicting the cleansing from sin they had graciously been granted. So John's message was that the kingdom was coming and one needed to be prepared to enter. So we, we may not always think about this, but it is important here, and that is the location of John's ministry. It is really very important. Matthew makes reference to it twice in the first two verses and then alludes to it in verse five. Again saying he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea then when he quotes from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Then he says, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him because he was not coming to them. So if you would, turn your Bibles to the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 2. And this is to kind of give you the, some background so that you will be able to understand why it is the location of John's ministry is really so important and was important in the message that he brought. Because again, there's people from all over the place going out to see this guy. Why would they do that? I mean, what is the deal? This guy, he's a wild man. You know, he's eating bugs. He's eating locusts and honey, and he's, you know, he wears the same clothes every day. And he's out there in the wilderness. So he's not in town. He's not visiting a city. He's not in any kind of a building. They're going out to hear him. And, and the crowd is growing. He's not performing miracles. He's not there, you know, multiplying bread and fish, as Jesus would do later, and feeding people. You know, he, he's not healing anybody. So what's going on here? Why is this so important? Well, Hosea is going to give us some background. Again, being uh, there in this country, most of these individuals, when they received their education, remember that when they went to school for the first uh, several years of education, so let's just use our terminology, so from the time you enter kindergarten and you go all the way through the fifth or sixth grade, you're only getting one thing, the Old Testament. You're being taught that every single day and you're memorizing large portions. This is not an attempt to brainwash them. The idea here is really a very simple one and it's this. Their belief was that no matter what you did in life, if you were going to be a fisherman, if you were going to be a carpenter, if you're going to be working in agriculture, 
Whatever you were going to do in life, you needed to be a person of character and integrity. And what develops that is the Word of God. And so they wanted to make sure that that was laid down first as being foundational. And when you had that, believing you would have that, then whatever you pursued, you were going to be okay. And so that's why that was done. And so, you know, when we go to, you know, most of the time when you read through Matthew, how many times have you thought of on your own, oh yeah, Hosea, chapter 2. I mean, I don't think that. When you're doing your study, you go, oh wow. And then you read it and things begin to kind of fall in place. So Hosea, chapter 2. So what you have here is basically there's, this, there's an appeal for repentance to Israel. And so there's threats of punishment. Um, there's some judgmental speeches that are given here. There's some accusation. And so I'm going to read the first 13 verses to kind of lay the land and, and give us the context of what we want to look at. So beginning in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 2. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother. Plead. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Now let me just stop there. So in the Old Testament, there are times that God, Jehovah God, viewed Israel as his wife, and God as her husband. Not in a literal marriage, but helping us to understand the relationship that is there. Helping us to understand the care and the commitment that God had towards his bride, or towards his wife. And so that's why... Uh, throughout the Old Testament, we have a lot of talk about spiritual adultery. Uh, so when Israel would go and, and worship other gods, she was committing spiritual adultery against God. That's the imagery uh, that we are to have in, in our minds. So that's what's going on here. So again, verse 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. For their mother has played the whore, she has conceived, uh, conceived them, uh, conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will pledge up her way with thorns and uh, hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Verse 10. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So all of that, what's going on is God says, this is my charge against Israel. This is what they have done. They have committed spiritual adultery. They are worshiping these other gods. They are involved in these other festivals that do not honor me. Uh, they are ignoring me. In fact, when you read throughout the Old Testament, there was a time when uh, within the various types of Baal worship, there was a time when there was, um, in certain, certain periods of time, where there was child sacrifice which is really abhorrent to think, think about people actually doing that, actually bringing your baby to a, an, an altar where you're worshiping a God where your baby's going to be slaughtered. It's just very difficult to imagine people doing that willingly. But Israel was so gung-ho that at one period of time, they were sacrificing more of their children to these gods than the pagans themselves. It was just unbelievable how far they had strayed. Because here God is calling to her to repent. So 
he's, he's talking about bringing Israel to a place of desperation, to where she would look at him again. That was the idea. You know, cut her off from all these things so that she will be desperate, and she will look to me, look to the Lord. And then the Lord's going to take the next step in restoring the relationship. So he's still pursuing this. Even though she's involved in these things, he's still pursuing her and this relationship. So now look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So what these verses are talking about is the Lord has promised to initiate reconciliation. He's he's not saying, I'm going to wait until she gets tired of her lovers and then she'll come back. No, he is taking action because he wants to restore this relationship. And he wants to restore this relationship with his wayward wife. In the English language uh, translation that we read from, it uses the word alluring. What that means is gentle and encouraging words. That's the idea. This is, not, this is not like a seduction, but the idea is to speak to her, to talk about her good qualities, absolutely, to speak gently to her. This would be to let her know that she is forgiven and that he is committed to her. The Lord said he would lead Israel into the desert when he does this. And the reason why he's going to lead her into the desert is so she'll be completely separated from her past lovers and be able to concentrate totally on his advances. That's the picture. God's going to come after Israel, who is in the midst of being unfaithful, and he's going to bring her out into the wilderness and separate her from all this mess that's going on. So she only has one place to look, and that's to God. And then he's going to speak to her softly and gently. Now, just that one aspect of it, which is, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of portraits of God that are drawn for us in the Scripture. And sometimes... What we have a tendency to do is we think about God in normally only one or two ways. And that can be dictated by a lot of things. They have said through several different studies that our first understanding or maybe our main understanding of God and what God is like is based on the picture of our Father. So if our Father is stern and a disciplinary, we tend to think of God that way. Now, God is that way, but he's not only that way. Others, if, if your dad was passive, then we may think of God as being passive. Maybe your dad was absent, and we think of God as being absent. And so, you know, as we read the scripture, we learn what God is like, but there's all of these things that, are, that make up the various facets of God. So this is one where when you and I are caught up in sin, which it happens to believers, Maybe often, I don't know what the percentage is, we think of God as kind of, he's got his arms crossed across his chest, and he's waiting, and he's not happy, and he's waiting to give us what we know we deserve, and kind of put things right, and God does do that sometimes, but not always. Here, the picture of God is very completely, is completely different. And it is a difficult one to picture to a degree. Because imagine if there's what we, there'd be a marriage of people we know 
And let's say that one of those individuals is messing around a lot. And the one who's being betrayed is the one who is making all the moves to fix the relationship. Too often what we would say is, I can't believe that, that in, in this sense, that he's doing that. Look at what she's doing. I wouldn't put up with that. I would just leave. What this reveals is the unbelievable level of commitment and love that the husband has for the wife. And that's what we see here. That's what we have with the relationship we have with God. God has this unbelievable commitment to you and I. Now, sometimes people worry about that. When you, when you talk about God that way, there's some of us, we just have a tendency to think, oh, man, you know, you, you, you can't keep saying that kind of stuff because people would think that it's just okay. Just go out and just keep on sinning. That is nowhere in the text. People can respond that way. Why are we so afraid of that? This is the picture of God and is an accurate one. We should be grateful and thankful. Because even though we sometimes would think, and maybe we would want God to be the one who's standing with his arms crossed when others are caught up in sin, who do you want to see standing there when you're caught up in sin? Well, I'd kind of like to see the, the other one. Not that he's two different people, he doesn't have a split personality. God is a very complex being. He's, he, he is a person. And this is him. And it, it, is a, it is a delightful thing. Remember that there are those individuals, what you want to get into the argument if they're saved or unsaved, it's immaterial at this point. There are those who get caught up in sin where there, there seems to be just no way out. You are completely overwhelmed overmatched and there is nowhere to go you can go in the direction of God God is he's incredible this picture is a being that is unbelievable this is a dream kind of individual who loves and is who is so strong and faithful and committed that they can do this and so here he's going to draw them again into the wilderness so they can be separated from all their past lovers and totally concentrate on him and what he says. So there was sometimes, this was sometimes pictured as a time when Israel experienced the Lord's care in a very special way. When she, Israel, in return, loved him with the devotion of a new bride. So the way Hosea was understood during the time of Jesus... The way that he was understood by many rabbis, not all of them, but by many of them, is they would say it this way, that at the beginning of the Messianic era, God is going to lead his people back into the wilderness, a wilderness that is reminiscent of the one in which he tested Israel after the Exodus. And because of this prophecy that is here, several of the rabbis insisted that the Messiah's coming would involve a return to the wilderness. So now we got this guy in the wilderness, who is preaching one message, and that is the Messiah is coming and the Messiah is here. People are paying attention. They are immediately making a connection between the wilderness and this message. And so that's why, that's at least in part why there's this stir. 
There's, there's a lot of people going out to hear John. And what is John's message? John's message in one word is repent. Repent, one way to define repent, entails a deep remorse and sincere regret for one's sinful lifestyle, a decision to forsake that lifestyle in submission to God's authority, and the pursuit of a life characterized by obedience to God. That would be a full definition. Now, there, there has been for many years now a long discussion among academics, among pastors about the word repent and about the word, what it really means. What that, if you define that word, what, how do you define that word? And what they will point out is that the term repent does not mean to feel sorry for your sin. And technically that is correct. It doesn't mean that. But that doesn't mean that we eliminate that when we deal with the topic of repentance. It is the changing of the mind. But it is not where one has merely changed their opinion. That's what's important. So it is, someone say, well, it's just a changing of the mind. Before you, you, know, you were against God, now you're for God. That's true. But that's clearly not enough of a definition. That's like saying, what is marriage? Uh, marriage is when two people stand before a preacher or a priest and uh, they make promises and they're married. Oh, is that all that it is? Oh, that's it. Uh, I think there's a lot more to it than just that. There would be a fuller definition that we would be looking for, not just, not just that. And so we're not just merely changing our opinion, we are changing our mind concerning a, a truth statement. That truth statement is of such importance and is so vast in what it touches and covers that the product of repentance is going to be a changed life which includes a changing of your emotion as well as other things in your life. Where you were once in a sense preoccupied with yourself, now you have a concern for others. So an individual can feel sorry and bad about their sin and that's not repentance. And it is possible for an individual to change their mind about God. But it would seem, in the way that the word is used and depicted in the scripture, that there's a bringing of these things together because this is a very profound event, a very profound thing that's happening in the life of an individual who is repenting of their sin and turning to God. We may respond to that different emotionally. Some may have more tears than others, and some may have no tears. But the bottom line is there's, there's going to be a sense of regret. I believe that at least in part, even though there may be a great deal of regret in the beginning, I also believe that regret will crop up from time to time as you grow as a Christian, as you remember the way you used to be and you have more regrets for what you were before. To where maybe you even get to a point to where you actually, it's like you hate yourself. You loathe yourself. When I think about some of the things that I, you know, I, when I was a teenager, I was just kind of a clown. I was just a classless clown. I made fun of everybody and everything all the time. Um, it was just bad. And there were times when I was just, there's no other way to say it, I was mean to people. I was cruel and obnoxious and just ugly. And I hate that. And I hate that I can't go back and change it. And, and I really, I truly regret it in every way. And there's times that I feel a, a burden, but I'm grateful to God. Thank the Lord I am forgiven. I don't have to carry that around. 
I'm, I'm glad that Christ was actually punished for those things that I did, because I deserve to be punished for those things and the hurt that I caused people. Now, I've not gotten away with anything in that sense. My sin has been punished in Christ. So there are times when then the regret will come from time to time in your life, and that's reflective of your growth as a believer. In fact, what we do in church, which we adopted several years ago, is that when we become believers, we not only repent of our sin, but we actually enter into a lifestyle of repenting. Repentance is viewed as an ongoing process. It's not a once-for-all thing. It, it is not that... So we, now, when we gather on Sunday morning and we have our prayer of confession, we're not confessing our sins again so we can get saved again. We're, that's not what we're doing. As believers, we recognize that we are still prone to sin because we live in the flesh, and the flesh is weak. We know that we do not obey God perfectly. There's a danger if we begin to take our sin lightly. We don't, we don't want our hearts to become hardened to our sin as believers. So by confessing our sin together and, and doing it in that way, we are going through an exercise that will enable us to, to maintain a, a soft heart to sin. We, we want to remain vulnerable to the Holy Spirit of God. And we really do want to deal with our sin. We want to sin less as we grow as believers. And that's one of the things that we do. It's, it's a tool, a discipline that we can use to help us in that way. But again, that's the message of John the baptizer here. Is he's calling to them to repent. Repentance is necessary because the kingdom has come near. He says the kingdom is at hand. It is on the brink of arriving. In fact, the kingdom is going to be present because the king will be present. So the kingdom spoken of by John is God's rule through his appointed king, the Messiah. Now, some commentators and books, they'll make a real big deal about the kingdom of heaven uh, and the kingdom of God, because both those terms are used in the Gospels. I believe they're the same thing. I don't, I don't see that there's a difference. One is not emphasizing one thing over the other. But what John is speaking about here is the presence of the kingdom of God among men, possibly something within their grasp, if they will only take hold of it. Basically, the kingdom is present only when Jesus himself is present. It may be more exact to say that the kingdom is being present in the person and mission of Jesus. Jesus would then be the kingdom in your midst whom the Pharisees ought to believe in in order to gain entrance to the coming kingdom of God. Everything is related to Jesus. He is the key. Jesus will be preaching an imminent yet future kingdom. The Pharisees held to a future kingdom. But they would never get in the kingdom while they steadfast ignore the one who would be its king. So Matthew points out that John the baptizer is the fulfillment then of Isaiah 40. 40 verse 3. So turn to Isaiah 40. I'll read the first three verses. But he is stating here that John is the fulfillment of this. In fact, all four of the Gospels make that application. All four of the Gospels state that John the baptizer is the fulfillment of this. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, it reads this way. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our king. 
And as many commentators have pointed out, and you may have heard messages when it talks about a herald coming to a place, telling people that, that, that the king or a great dignitary is coming, and to prepare, the way they would prepare was not only by cleaning your homes, because he may stop by, but it was by basically fixing the roads. And so it was to make the roads as flat as possible. It may be hilly country, but the idea was to try to make it as level as possible so that the, the journey would be, would be easy for the king or the one who's coming. You, you would make it straighter if, if, instead of curved, unless it's necessary to be curved. And again, it's to make it shorter for the one who's coming. The idea was to get things ready, preparing for this special individual that's coming. And so that's what this message is. That the Lord's coming. The Lord, that God, the Lord God, he's coming. You need to prepare yourselves. You need to prepare the way. John was a desert prophet who prepared the way for Jesus Christ. So here again in Isaiah, the entire nation was in a spiritual wilderness. Each Israelite needed to get ready spiritually for the appearing of the Lord in his glory. Now I want us to think about the last phrase just for a moment. Each Israelite, each individual, needed to get ready spiritually for the appearing of the Lord and his glory. So remember what we stated concerning Hosea chapter 2. The Lord often leads one into the desert where they will be completely separated from past loves and be able to concentrate totally on his advances. One of the most common ways that God deals with us is that way. To separate you from those things that you may love more than him. To separate you from those things you depend on more than him. I'll give you a simple example. Hurricane comes through. Some of us lost power for a little while. Some of us lost power for several hours. Some for a couple of days. What I know to be true just in general, that most of us in the summer are in a good mood because there's this thing called air conditioning. Right? There's air conditioning. It's easy to be in a good mood. Take air conditioning away. What happens? Well, in the beginning, not much. I don't know if you ever thought this, but Cindy and I were kind of joking about this. You know, the house was getting hot because we were out of power. And so she said, which I was also thinking, bring the fan in, turn it on, <laughs> until the, and then you realize, oh, that runs by electricity as well. <laughs> but you know, we do that. But you know what can happen as, 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 you know, as you're waiting for power to come back, we, you know, we start to get a little more irritable. Now, I don't think any of us would ever say that Air conditioning is a substitute for God. But I will say that our attitudes and the way we approach life should be dependent upon the relationship we have with God more so than the relationship we have with our air conditioning. Right? Amen. And, we are, and I know you, some of you are in stunned silence because you don't like this. Because you know. That maybe, and so maybe, perhaps, God separated you and I from our air conditioning for a while, just a little while, to kind of show us what we're dependent on. And maybe you haven't come as far as you really think you have, and all it takes is a few hours of our air conditioning for you to start getting 
irritable and treating people wrongly. Just doesn't take much. We're just not really all that strong. Now there are times, there are times in our lives that there are things obviously much more serious than that, <coughs> than just having a power outage. And there may be times in your life when you're going through a lot of great difficulties. There's difficulty at home and there's difficulty at work. Relationships, professional or otherwise, don't seem to be going well. There's an inner sense of frustration. Sometimes there's, there's a frustration added on top of that that you don't even know where that comes from. Then you know there's certain unknown things that are bothering us and it feels like the stress is building up. So we're not handling the stress very well. Just so you know, I, I really don't think stress is ever the culprit. It's the way we handle stress that's the problem. And we don't always handle it really that, that well. And so what begins to take place is, is that we, we feel these things mounting up and maybe you get to this point, maybe you don't, depending on the situation, or maybe sometimes if this goes on for days and days and days, we begin to wonder, where is God in all of this? And I think sometimes what God is doing is showing us that uh, our dependency upon God is not really what, it, what we thought it was, and that we haven't changed as much as we think we have, and that maybe we have a lot farther to go. Sometimes people go through really difficult times, like maybe facing cancer. You know, we're talking about, so again, I'm not, we're not, we're no longer talking about being without power for a day or so. What about those things that are, your life is, is threatened? Your way of living is threatened. It could be that way with the losing of a job or to think you're going to lose a job. And all these things begin to mount up. And sometimes what happens is, is God takes all these things away, kind of like putting us in a desert to where there's only one place left to look. It was the first place we should have looked, but all those things and distractions had to be taken away first. And then we finally look in the direction that we should have looked in at the very beginning, and that's to the Lord. It may sound silly, but I don't think it's silly when you go for 10, 12 hours of air conditioning to say, Lord, I know I'm not acting right, and this reveals how unbelievably shallow I am. But I know, I, please help me not to be this way. And then for those who are facing things much more difficult, we need to go to the Lord for strength in dealing with all the various things that go along with whether it's a cancer diagnosis or the other stresses of life. We need to learn to respond as a Christian and it's always to God to prepare the way we have to be prepared for these things and God desires to do that and he always begins with our sin that's always the big that's always the big snafu it's always that you want God to fix your marriage God wants to fi fix your sin first he wants to deal with your sin you having difficulty at work God God can help you handle that but he wants to deal with your sin first, whether it's the way you're sinfully responding or maybe other things that are going on. But God wants us to take our sin very seriously. He wants to deal with that. that the greatest source of joy we're going to have is because of this relationship that we have with Christ, which is based on, on his death, burial, and resurrection in forgiving me of my sin so I can be adopted as a son of God and I am a brother to Christ. And when, and when that is restored and when that is where it needs to be, I will have the strength I need to deal with everything else that comes my way. 
In the same way that happens to a family in a time of great tragedy. You know, when, everything, when you lose everything and you have each other, most people are very grateful they still have each other. And they depend upon each other. And the belief is, even though they all get irritated with each other, is they will be able to survive together because they have each other. And that's what's most important. You, you now possess. No one's given you anything, but you possess what you need to be able to deal with the, with the challenges of life. So those relationships are of utmost important, importance. And the most, obviously, is the one that we have with God. So for those of us that are believers, I would challenge you to, to look at your life. And you don't have to wait for God to take you into the desert. I would certainly come to Christ way before that point if I was aware that I'm going in the wrong direction. But if you do find yourself in that position, don't somehow think that because the only one you can look to is God, that somehow that diminishes your commitment to God. God is very happy for that. He's very pleased with that. And so I would say, come to Christ. He will forgive you. He will restore he will strengthen and he will renew you. For those of you who are not believers, you have no source of spiritual strength. You have nowhere to go to find more of that inner strength that you need to deal with life. It, just, it doesn't exist. And, and you have no place to renew your spirit. There's nowhere to go. And God is not going to come down and carry you through the storm because you are his enemy. You refuse to acknowledge him. He's the only one who can forgive you of your sin and your unrighteousness. He's the only one that can fix what is broken. And what is broken is you, as well as all those other things. You come to Christ. Recognize that you need forgiveness of sin. And he will adopt you into his family. He will cause you to be born again. And you'll be welcomed into the family immediately. Well, you will be loved by all, period. What a marvelous gift. And he then will give you and supply you the strength that you need and the energy you need to deal with the difficulties of life. It doesn't mean the difficulties will go away. In fact, sometimes they get a little worse. But he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. He is good to his word. He, we have seen him fulfill his promises in Scripture, we, many of us have seen him fulfill his promises in our lives because he is a God who is faithful to his own word. He is faithful to himself. And because he is faithful to himself, we know he will then be faithful to us. Not because we're great, but because he is. What a marvelous God that we have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again that you are a God who does not take us into the desert to leave us alone. We thank you, Lord, that you are there that you are a God who seeks to encourage, to love, and to care for. And Father, as we have received the forgiveness of our sins, all of us who are believers have experienced your great mercy. And even though we may at times have seen your sternness, we have seen more of your mercy and kindness and gentleness than anything else. For that, we are so grateful. And Father, we, we long to experience more of that because, Father, we know that we need that. We thank you, Father, that you forgive us of our unfaithfulness and our waywardness and our fickleness. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged by what we read here today. 
And Father, for those who may not know Christ, Father, we ask that in your kindness and gentleness, but in your firmness as well, Lord, you would convict them of their sin of unbelief. That they will recognize that they fail to acknowledge you for who you are. That they will recognize that it's not enough just to intellectually nod your head and say, oh yes, I believe in the idea of God. Or to nod your head and say, oh yes, I believe that God does exist. But to acknowledge that God, the creator of the universe, judge of all things and giver of life, the one from whom all blessings come, is God, is our creator, is our sovereign, and we should acknowledge and worship him. Help us, Father, to recognize that we have failed to do that. And the only way that we can succeed in doing that is to submit to the personal work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, again for your great patience with us, both believers and non-believers alike. So, Father, we ask that as we bring our time here to a close this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would deeply impress your word on our hearts and minds and that we would think of it often throughout this week. As always, we do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.